Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. And welcome to Weather Geeks. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And today I am joined by Dr. Alexa Van Eaton from the U.S. Geological Survey. She's at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, and she's a volcanologist. And I'm going to let you explain to people that are watching, what does that actually mean? <laughs> sure. Well, contrary to popular belief, it has nothing to do with tires or <laughs> Star Trek. A volcanologist is just somebody who studies volcanoes right. and eruptions. You can study, you know, effusive eruptions that produce lava or explosive ones that produce volcanic ash, and that's the kind that, that I'm interested and in. And you might be wondering, why is a volcanologist on Weather Geeks? And it's because you study things like volcanic lightning, dirty thunderstorms, and weather interaction. So today's show is all about volcanoes and weather. So first of all, let's start with some basics. What causes an eruption? Sure. Well, volcanoes come about in part, actually, in a way that's not too dissimilar from thunderstorms. Thunderstorms are driven by water, and actually explosive volcanoes, explosive eruptions are driven by water, too. Sure. So what's basically happening is that, you know, you've got your tectonic plates and the oce oceanic tectonic plate subducting beneath the continental plate sure, yeah. is dragging down water from the ocean, and that's the water that actually helps to melt the, the asthenosphere of the deep earth and create magma in the first place. So this magma, and so you get these sort of forces that then get the eruption to occur. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about the role, you mentioned it a little bit, the role of water, because I think people will be sure. surprised, the role of water in volcanic right. eruption. So water is what helps melt the rock to create magma in the first place. But then that water is what drives the explosive eruption. So as the magma is rising through the deep earth and getting shallower and shallower, it expands, it turns from, from a liquid to a vapor, creates a huge volumetric expansion, and that is what creates the driving force that leads to an explosion. Right, and that's the eruption. Now, what, what places in the U.S. are most volcanic active, if, will, if you will? Sure, well, certainly we've got Hawaii and Alaska. People are very familiar with the volcanoes there. We also have the Cascades Range in the western U.S. that has a lot of active volcanoes, like Mount St. Helens. That's the most... Sure, and it's been, as of the taping, it's been waking up a little bit, right, Mount St. Helens? Well, there have been earthquakes yeah. associated, you know, near the volcano, and whether that's related to magma movement or not um, still, you know, remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. Now, let's get into... This is Weather Geeks, and we've got people out there fascinated by the way. Let's get into dirty thunderstorms. What is a dirty thunderstorm? Right. So, you know, we already talked about a little bit how water is involved in the magma and drives the explosion. So that water is still in the volcanic ash mixture that gets injected at speed into the upper atmosphere. Right. So you end up with, with heat, moist convection, um, basically a, the perfect recipe for a thunderstorm. Right but it's filled with volcanic ash, right. and you've got higher velocities and higher initial temperatures. Right. So you've basically got a turbocharged thunderstorm above a volcano, yeah. and that's the concept of a dirty thunderstorm. And 
I've seen some fascinating video of lightning happening in volcanic eruptions. And as we know from cumulonimbus or thunderstorm clouds, that's certainly, we understand the processes there. Are the processes similar in these thunderstorm lightning cases? And I know that's one of your areas of expertise. Right, yeah, that's a good question. Um, so certainly people are familiar with static charge and you know walking across the carpet on a dry day. And that's not exactly the same process that charges thunderstorms where the main physics is grapel, you know, colliding with ice particles and liquid water droplets. We do think that that process is happening in volcanic clouds because of the water that's in the mixture. But the difference between volcanic eruptions and thunderstorms is that you have a lot of ash. So we also think that the ash particles are colliding against, you know, hitting each other close to the volcanic source and the fragmentation of magma itself can lead to charge buildup. Now, now let's talk about that because you talk about them colliding and you get charge buildup and then I guess charge separation. Right. In, in a thunderstorm, when we talk about the atmosphere, in a, in a big thunderstorm, a cumulonimbus, you have charge separation, negative mm -hmm. and positive. So that's right. essential to this process too. Right, we think that that's certainly the case because you have a range of particle sizes erupted as volcanic ash. You know how you have bomb-sized particles and then tiny ash particles. So those can gravitationally separate through time in the mixture, and if they have a different charge, you end up with a charge separation, which can then lead to the plasma channel of lightning. Now, do we only get this type of volcanic lightning, if you will, for big volcanic eruptions, or can smaller volcanic eruptions produce the phenomenon? Right, so we think so far that all sizable volcanic eruptions, you know, that get at least a few hundred meters above the volcanic vent, produce some kind of electrical signal that can be detected by radio waves, um, you know, if you're, if you're close to the source. But only the really big eruptions that get above like 10 kilometers into the atmosphere produce large lightning strokes that sure. can be detected globally. Now, let's talk a little bit, because you mentioned radio waves. Talk about some of the ways that you actually map and detect uh, these uh, lightning occurrences. Sure. I mean, are you using satellite, aircraft, ground-based radar? I think you mentioned some things. Right. Like yeah, so far, the, the most effective ways to, to map out the lightning in volcanic eruptions is using radio waves, so using radio antennas that detect the electromagnetic radiation sure. emitted by lightning. But also, you you know, I've got some colleagues doing high-speed camera work, just setting up the camera, watching a bunch of volcanic eruptions, and mapping out the, the lightning in high speed. So those are the two techniques so far that have been really useful for trying to map out where lightning happens and how it evolves. Now, you were mentioning, and I, I think people may be familiar in 2017 with the volcano Agung, is that how I pronounce mm -hmm. it? In Bali. But you In Bali. Uh, but you were mentioning to me that you have a favorite little spot that you like to work <laughs> in around Alaska. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. So all of last year, all of 2017, there's a little known volcano outside of Dutch Harbor in Alaska. From deadliest catch for those of you who might watch that show. Right, called Bogoslav. Yeah. And this is a big stratovolcano, but only the tip is poking out of the Bering Sea. And so it's a pretty special volcano because it's not that often that volcanologists get to see a wet eruption, which is where the magma is interacting with a big body of water like, like the ocean in right. this case. So it's, it's kind of an extreme. We're talking about water and volcanic eruptions, but this is the extreme example. Through all of 2017, there's been an eruption through water. So that's been really fascinating to try to understand how 
Lightning evolves. And let's talk about it more, but coming up on Weather Geeks, ever heard of volcanic hail? Neither had we. We'll learn all about it, why it forms, and why we're just now hearing about it next on Weather Geeks. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are back on Weather Geeks, and I'm talking to Dr. Alexa Van Eaton from the USGS, and she studies the interactions between volcanoes and weather. And this is one that I have to admit kind of blew my mind when I saw <laughs> that we were going to talk about it. Volcanic hail? What is that? It's a thing. It's a thing. Okay, well, tell <laughs> us what it is and how it happens. Right. So, yeah, most people aren't aware that wet volcanic plumes, like the ones we were talking about that interact with water at the surface, can inject that water into the atmosphere with the ash. Right. And with the turbulence and the moisture and the particle interactions, you can create volcanic hailstones. So that is injected in and it's colder at upper atmosphere. Is it freezing exactly. as it goes into the higher altitudes where we're going below the freezing level? Exactly. So or you above start the off. Freezing level, I should say. Right. So you start off really hot, hundreds of degrees Celsius from the magmatic temperatures. And then as that turbulent mixture ingests cold air and rises higher into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere. So what we find in the geologic record is that we have these examples of concentric ash balls, okay. essentially. We call these accretionary lapilli. Okay. Uh, but what we've learned so far is that they're forming in a way that's really similar to hail formation in a regular thunderstorm by circulation and recirculation through wet and icy or frozen so parts. So it, it actually builds up, because you look at a, a, a hailstone in a thunderstorm, you have these layers, if you will, like an onion. Exactly, yeah. and that's what we see in these structures, is that they're onion-like concentric laminae that are growing as the particles are circulating through different parts of the turbulent flow. Right, so why have, I mean, I, I, I think I know a little bit about weather and earth science processes, and I've never heard of this. Why have we, many people never heard of, none of our producers had heard of this, why? Absolutely, yeah, that's a good point. Why haven't people yeah, been studying it, this? It's a, a <laughs> relatively new phenomenon, we're just discovering this? It's been going on forever, but we are just starting to pay attention to this type of process. Part of it is that big eruptions in Iceland, like Eyjafjallajökull in 2010, Grimsbotten in 2011, were kind of high-profile eruptions that had a big impact on global aviation. And so people really paid attention to what those deposits looked like. And both of those eruptions produced volcanic hail. So that allows us an opportunity to go back into the geologic record for older eruptions and sort of compare you know, this is what landed during this big event versus what we have in the geologic layers. I see. Oh, now, you know, I think people understand the sort of danger and hazard of volcanic ash and whatnot. Uh, if someone were sort of a skeptic or someone that's sort of skeptical scientific research, say, well, so what, there's volcanic hail, how would you answer that question? Sure thing, yeah, why do we care? I mean, the reason this is important is because this hailstone process and this aggregation process basically scrubs the fine ash out of the atmosphere. 
and the fine ash is what travels usually downwind and it affects aircraft. You know, the jet aircraft ingest ash and it leads to problems with the engine. So this is a mechanism by which that ash gets pulled out of the atmosphere really early. And because we still have a poor understanding of how this works in, you know, in real time, it's challenging to forecast where the ash is going to go. Right. So we, we need to sort of clarify how this, how this all works. Yeah, and that's generally how science in general works. Talk about the surprising ways that volcanoes can interact with the atmosphere. What is this notion of algae armies in the sky? Sure. What is that? Okay, this is, this is a pretty bizarre phenomenon. Again, this is something that's clearly been happening through geologic time but has only recently been recognized. And that's that explosive eruptions don't erupt just rocks and ash, but algae and microbes and anything that's sort of in the vent area. And those microbes can be transported thousands of kilometers away, as far downwind as the ash and is the ash flowing by itself or, or along right. with it. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're really on some cutting edge research here. And from what I'm gathering, a lot of things that we're talking about are relatively new discoveries or thinking. Sure thing, yeah. they, they definitely are. And there's, you know, regarding the transport of microbes in volcanic eruption plumes, that's, there's hardly been any work done on that right, yet. Right. So there's, there are questions, you know, like can, can microbes potentially survive transport in uh, an ash cloud? And you know, I, I have to go there. I think I know the answer to this, but is, are any of these microbes harmful or dangerous if they're transported <laughs> to populated areas? Or right, good question. That's that's for the for the biologists. I, I sure hope. we're here in Atlanta. We have CDC, or you know, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. But you know, people do ask those kind of questions when you hear microbes and things. I think they in, yeah. invoke a certain kind that's of. That's a good point. What about other sleeping giants that we uh, we're learning about about volcanic eruptions in general? What are some other things that might surprise our viewers? Oh man, I mean, I think for sure it's been quite a surprise that anything, any of the microbiome around a volcano could be potentially erupted into the atmosphere. You know, we're talking about microbes, you know, like the potential of viruses or bacteria, but actually what, you know, as a scientist, what I'm interested in or thinking about is things like diatoms or, you know, little microalgae that can tell you about the environment that was there when the eruption occurred. So if we have these big, you know, caldera volcanoes that have a long lake history that can tell you about climate or about how changes in the, in the local environment were um, changing through time, you know, and a volcanic eruption spews that out and transports it thousands of kilometers away, there's potentially a record of that environmental change that's preserved in deposits that, you know, are really far flung. So I think that's that's a sort of emerging area of, of research, but you know that's that's really for the geology. But sure. looking ahead towards towards monitoring and thinking about you know how we can use our understanding of physical processes in volcanic eruptions to to sort of do a better job of detecting and forecasting ash hazards. You know I really think that this volcanic lightning process is gonna be crucial moving forward. Absolutely, no, I can clearly see the applications for anyone that it travels on an airplane for a I wanna mention something, you heard um, our guest talk about climate. We do know that volcanic eruptions can actually temporarily cool the climate system as they inject particles into the stratosphere. Uh, we're not really necessarily dealing with that topic today, but I wanted to make sure that people often understand that because we do hear that whenever we have big volcanoes. Oh, how that, is that going to impact the climate? Now, in this last segment, let's talk about a couple of things that our viewers might find fascinating. How do volcanoes affect sunsets? Uh, oh. <laughs> 
Right, so if you have um, aerosols or volcanic ash in the atmosphere, that makes you know, a beautiful sunset. Sure. Yeah, what was the, the artist? Of, yeah. 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 So scattered. the artist um, Turner, yes. you know, part of the Impressionist movement, painted those really beautiful sunsets. Um, and that was all because of volcanic ash in the atmosphere. Sure. So, and actually, when I was stuck in Europe during the Eyjafjallajökull eruption, the first thing I noticed before my flight was canceled and the mayhem ensued at all the airports in Europe, the first thing I noticed was that the sun looked hot pink. And we got to end on hot pink today. Thank you so much for <laughs> joining us on Weather Geeks.